Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a lecture by Dr. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, is professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's a former bishop of Durham in the Church of England. He is a prolific author, a renowned scholar. His writings cover so much of Scripture, especially the New Testament. We're going to hear a lecture today that he gave actually at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. It's a lecture. We're grateful for the permission to use this lecture from our friends at Regent. It's a lecture on the resurrection. In this, the Easter season, we're focused on the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus be not raised again, we are yet in our sins. There is no hope. Uh, But now is Christ raised from the dead. We say that, we sing that at Easter, but what does it really mean? Uh, Dr. Tom Wright offers here a strong, stirring, thoughtful, penetrating defense of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to find out more about his thinking along this line, I recommend his book simply called The Resurrection of the Son of God, Christian Origins and the Question of God. You'll find a a wonderful presentation there of the same thing he's talking about in this lecture uh, entitled, What Can We Say About Easter and the Rise and Shape of the Early Church? Let's listen to Dr. Tom Wright on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to the question of Easter. This is a whole other ballgame. The question of the resurrection lies at the heart of the Christian faith. There is no form of early Christianity known to us, though there are some that have been invented by ingenious scholars, that does not affirm at its heart that after Jesus' shameful death, God raised him to life again. Already by the time of Paul, who is our earliest written witness, the resurrection of Jesus is not just a single article of faith among many. It is woven into the very structure of Christian life and thought so that it informs, among other things, baptism, justification, ethics, and the future hope, both for humans and the whole cosmos. Resurrection is part of the warp and woof of Paul's theology. In particular, the resurrection is the answer which is given by all of early Christianity to the fourth key question about Jesus. We've been looking all through at uh, what was Jesus' relation to Judaism, what were his aims, why did he die. The fourth question must be, which I suggest any historian of whatever background ought to ask, why did Christianity arise and why did it take the shape it did? Here you have this extraordinary phenomenon in the first century A.D., and we are so used to it as Christians about the fact of early Christianity that we just forget how extraordinary it is, something like this coming up out of nowhere, apparently. The early Christians themselves reply, we are here because of Jesus' resurrection. And it is incumbent upon the historian to investigate what they meant by it and what can be said by way of historical comment upon what they meant by it. And as I stressed before, I stress again, it is perfectly possible for a historian to say, and I know several um, non-believing, non-Christian historians who do, that they all really did believe that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, but we, of course, know that's wrong or whatever. 
Now, I stress the historical angle from the outset because it has, of course, been argued and indeed insisted upon in many circles that whatever we mean by the resurrection of Jesus, it isn't accessible to historical investigation. As Crossan remarks about the study of Jesus in general, there have been some who said it couldn't be done, some who said it shouldn't be done, and some who said the former when they meant the latter. Getting to the heart of these objections and answering them in detail would take us too far afield. I have a whole other lecture on that stuff, and there's only time for one this afternoon. I simply wish to assert right now that the historian, so far from being debarred from investigating Jesus' resurrection, is in fact obligated to undertake such an investigation, because without it, a large hole remains in the center of first century history, no matter what presuppositions the historian may possess. There have, of course, been several false trails in the investigation of the question, at least at a popular or semi-popular level. Some try to show again and again that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It's old, it's boring, you know all about it, but it has to be mentioned. There are still people who say that. One of the most recent is Barbara Thiering. Uh, with, um, and what she then does with it is even more bizarre. But as has been shown often enough, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it, they knew how to do it, they were extremely effective. Their empire was built on it. And the reappearance of a battered and exhausted Jesus would hardly have been likely to suggest to his followers something for which they weren't prepared, namely that he had gone through death and out the other side. Equally, there are plenty of people who produce theories to explain that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind him. This is really at the level of trivial introduction, just getting the subject off the ground before the serious stuff. But the BBC in London made a program a year ago built around the discovery in Jerusalem of an ossuary, a bone box, with the name Jesus, son of Joseph, on it. And in the same tomb, they discovered with a thrill of excitement that there were also ossuaries of people named Joseph and Mary and another Mary and a Matthew and somebody called Judah described as the son of Jesus. And the, uh, the, the reporters went wild with delight. Not surprisingly, the people who are totally unimpressed were the Israeli archaeologists who knew perfectly well that Jesus, Joseph, Judah, Mary, Matthew were names exceedingly common in the first century. It was rather like finding John and Sally Smith in the London telephone directory. <laughs> and though actually, I mean, it's interesting, the stuff about the ossuaries, that uh, as soon as you realize that the burial of Jesus was a two-stage burial, at least designed to be a two-stage burial, you know, first you put the body in the tomb, then you wait till it's decomposed, then you go and collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, then all sorts of other questions come up about what was going on. I'll come back to that much later. A book was reviewed last autumn in newspapers around the world in which two intrepid researchers put together a fast-moving blockbuster of detective research involving the medieval Knights Templar, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, the Gnostics, concealed patterns in medieval paintings and so on and so on, all to reach the conclusion that the bones of Jesus are buried somewhere in the southwest of France and that the real message of the gospel was about living a good life and earning a spiritual, not bodily resurrection, and that the early church made up the doctrine of bodily resurrection as a way of gaining political and financial power. The book is called, ironically, The Tomb of God, ironically because, of course, if Jesus' bones are in a tomb somewhere in southwestern France, there is no reason to suppose he was or is God. And if they think that belief in the resurrection was a way to power or money, they should read the New Testament and think again. <laughs> or, or maybe even be a New Testament scholar. Hmm. <laughs> 
At least these ventures into popular level pseudo-historiography reveal one thing, that the question of Jesus' re resurrection remains perennially fascinating, which is good news in an oblique sort of way, gets it on the agenda. I mean, people all over London this last week talking about whether Jesus or Paul was the real inventor of Christianity because the Evening Standard sponsored a debate between myself and A.N. Wilson in which he said that Paul was and I said that Jesus was. And I'm delighted. I mean, even though Wilson's stuff was extraordinary, the Evening Standard of all papers actually splashed this one right around London. People were talking in the pubs about the origins of Christianity. Hallelujah. At a more serious scholarly level, there has, of course, been plenty of continuing discussion, but it's tended to take place at the, about resurrection. It's tended to take place at the level of philosophical or, theolo or systematic treat treatments, such as the writings of Maltman and Pannenberg, of Skillebakes and O'Collins, and in Australia, the uh, Archbishop Peter Carnley of Perth. And those New Testament scholars who've written about the resurrection in recent times have tended to belong to the German traditional historical school who have attempted to probe back behind the details of the gospel texts in 1 Corinthians 15 to see where such traditions could have come from. Did this bit get added by that layer in the church and was that bit uh, a little bit stuck in by somebody in the last moment before Paul or what? I think particularly of Willy Markson in The Last Generation and Gerd Ludemann in the present one, and of the large book by the American scholar Fiem Perkins. But these treatments have tended to be atomistic and fragmentary, and like most traditio historical research, they end with as many puzzles as they had at the start. What we've lacked has been a serious historical treatment of the subject from a writer firmly anchored within the Judaism of the first century. And the closest we've come to that, very interestingly, have been hints in two writers who do not themselves appear to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but who nevertheless say that something very strange really does seem to have happened. Geza Vermesh, in his first book on Jesus, Jesus the Jew, asserts that the tomb really was empty and that the disciples didn't steal the body. Leaves it at that. Ed Sanders in Jesus and Judaism speaks of Jesus' disciples as carrying on the logic of Jesus' work in a transformed situation and says that the result of Jesus' life and work culminated in, quote, the resurrection and the foundation of a movement which endured. He forswears any special explanations or rationalizations of why the disciples had the experiences of the risen Jesus after his death. But he points out that on the one hand, Jesus' disciples must have been prepared for a dramatic event which would establish the kingdom, but that on the other hand, what actually happened, which Sanders describes as simply the death and resurrection, quote, required them to adjust their expectation but did not create a new one out of nothing. Now, Vermesh and Sanders thus bear witness as historians of first century Judaism to the great difficulty faced by any attempt to say that on the one hand nothing happened to the body of Jesus, but on the other hand, Christianity began precisely as a resurrection movement shortly after his death. There's a serious problem which needs addressing before we begin our own argument proper, namely that the resurrection has from fairly on in the church been regarded as the proof or a proof of Jesus' divinity. 
incarnation and resurrection have been bound up together. And this indeed is a possible reason why people have denied that the historian can pronounce on the resurrection, since the historian, qua historian, can hardly be expected to arrive at confident conclusions about God. But again, I think this betrays a lack of historical thought. The Maccabean martyrs expected to be raised from the dead, but they didn't think that this would make them divine. Paul argues that all Christians will be raised as Jesus was raised, but that won't mean that they will share the unique divine sonship which in the same letter he attributes to Jesus. Already in Paul we see, in fact, the clear distinction between resurrection, a newly embodied life after death, and exaltation or enthronement, a distinction which some scholars have said only enters the tradition in Luke. But this is to run a little ahead of myself. For the moment, we can simply note that whatever we think about Jesus' divinity, see the last lecture, that cannot be the first meaning of Jesus' resurrection. And the converse is also important. Even if the disciples became convinced on other grounds that Jesus was divine, that of itself would not have led them to say that he had therefore been raised from the dead. Let me then attempt to mount a historical argument historical argument, focused mainly on the rise of the early church within the world of first century Judaism, a historical argument as to what must have happened on Easter morning or thereabouts. This is to treat the resurrection of Jesus as, first and foremost, a historical problem. There are three stages to this argument, each one of which contains the, four, the same four basic steps. So first stage in the argument, Christianity began as a kingdom of God movement. Let me summarize the four steps within this first stage. First, Christianity began as a kingdom of God movement. Second, however, kingdom of God in Judaism had certain particular meanings. Third, these hadn't happened yet. Fourth, we therefore have to postulate as historians a reason why the early Christians said the kingdom was in fact here. Let me spell out each of those. First, early Christianity thought of itself as a kingdom of God movement. Already by the time of Paul, the phrase kingdom of God had become more or less a shorthand for the movement and its way of life and its raison d'etre. And despite the attempts of some, not least in the Jesus Seminar, to suggest that this kingdom of God meant for the early Christians a new personal or spiritual experience rather than a Jewish-style movement designed to establish the rule of God in the world, all the actual evidence that we have, as opposed to the fanciful would-be evidence which some have dreamed up on the basis of a hypothetical early Q and early Thomas, indicates that if Jesus' movement was a counter-temple movement, early Christianity was a counter-empire movement. Get your minds around that one. When Paul said Jesus is Lord, it's clear that he meant Caesar is not. This isn't Gnostic escapism. This is Jewish-style, no-king-but-God theology, with Jesus in the middle of it. And this theology generated and sustained not a group of Gnostic-style conventicles, but a Jewish-style New Covenant community. Christianity was indeed, in the Jewish sense, a kingdom of God movement. That's the first step in this first stage of the argument. Second step. Within Judaism, the coming kingdom of God meant, as we saw, the end of Israel's exile, the overthrow of pagan empire, the exaltation of Israel, the return of Yahweh to Zion to judge and to save. 
Looking wider, it meant the renewal of the world, the establishment of God's justice for the cosmos. It wasn't, in other words, about a private existentialist or gnostic experience. It was about public events. If you had said to a first century Jew, the kingdom of God is here, I've said this already this afternoon, uh, or this morning sometime, and had explained yourself by speaking of a new spiritual experience, a new sense of forgiveness, an exciting reordering of your private religious interiority, he or she might well have said that they were glad you'd had this experience, but why did you refer to it as the kingdom of God? Third, however, it was abundantly clear that the kingdom of God had not come in the way that first century Jews had imagined. Israel was not liberated, the temple was not rebuilt, evil, injustice, pain and death were still on the rampage. So the question presses, why did the early Christians say that the kingdom of God had come? Now you could answer, oh, they changed the meaning of the phrase radically so that it now referred not to a political state of affairs but to an internal or spiritual one. But that's simply untrue to early Christianity. The first written exposition of Christian kingdom theology, which happens to be the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, as the first written exposition of the resurrection, has Paul explaining that the kingdom is coming in a two-stage process so that the Jewish hope for God to be all in all will be realized fully in the future following its decisive inauguration in the events concerning Jesus. The early Christians, in fact, not only used the phrase kingdom of God, they reordered their symbolic world, their storytelling world, their habitual praxis, the things that they did regularly around it. They acted as if the Jewish-style kingdom of God was really present. They organized their life as if they really were the returned-from-exile people, the people of the new covenant. At the same time, we must ask, why in this process did they not continue the sort of kingdom revolution they had imagined Jesus would lead? How do we explain the fact, in other words, that early Christianity was neither a nationalist Jewish movement nor an existentialist private experience? So forth at the end of this first stage of the argument. We must, as historians, postulate a reason to account for this group of first century Jews who had cherished these kingdom expectations, saying that their expectations had in fact been fulfilled, though not in the way they'd imagined. The early Christians themselves answered that question with one voice. The reason was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But before exploring this further, we must move to the second stage of the argument. Christianity wasn't just a kingdom of God movement. It was from the first a resurrection movement. What did resurrection mean in the first century? We've seen already that Christianity began as a resurrection movement. It wasn't simply that resurrection was a belief bolted on to Christianity at the edge. It was the central driving force informing the whole thing. But the second step of the second stage of the argument, resurrection in first century Judaism had quite definite meaning. This is a little complex and I need to spell it out a bit more. It's actually very, very important to figure out what resurrection meant in first century Judaism. There is evidence, good evidence, plenty of it, for a spectrum of views in first century Judaism concerning what happens to people after they die. There are some writings that speak of an ultimate non-physical bliss. Philo of Alexandria, the book of Jubilees, speak like that. 
There are some writings which insist that the physical bodies of the righteous dead will be restored so that, for instance, the martyrs will be, as one might say, put back together again to confront their torturers and executioners and celebrate their downfall. The most obvious example of this is two Maccabees, you know, the grisly stuff about you can cut off my hands, you can cut off my tongue, you can tear out my entrails because God is going to give them all back to me. Um, Almost a, a, a literal resuscitation. There are some writings that speak of a temporary disembodied state followed by a re-embodiment. Wisdom of Solomon chapter 3, despite popular misconceptions, belongs there. And likewise Josephus, who talks about the soul passing eventually into another body, which isn't transmigration of souls. It is the soul going to be in a disembodied state and then being eventually given a new body. Finally, of course, within the Jewish spectrum, there are those who deny that there is any continued existence after death at all, namely the Sadducees, producing that nice irony that uh, in, in the rabbis you find all Israel has a share in the age to come except the Sadducees, which is ironic because it means that the Sadducees are proved right in their own case. Um, but with, now, within this spectrum from Philo through to the Sadducees or whatever, A couple of points need to be made. Though there was a range of belief about life after death, the word resurrection was only used to describe re-embodiment, not the state either of final disembodied bliss, a la Jubilees, or the intermediate state, a la Wisdom of Solomon. Resurrection was not a general word for life after death or for going to be with God in some generalized sense. I I find it terribly difficult to get this into people's heads, particularly traditional Anglicans in England who have for so long used the language of resurrection along with the language of going to heaven when they die and meaning by both of them some vague sense about disembodiment so that you find all sorts of misunderstandings creeping up into even people who you thought were quite otherwise moderately well-educated Christians. Resurrection for a Jew was the word for what happened when God created newly embodied human beings after whatever intermediate state there might or mightn't be. And when people envisaged the state of temporary disembodiment prior to eventual resurrection, there was a variety of language they could use for it. Such folk could be described as souls or as angels, or some near equivalent, or as spirits, not as resurrected bodies. So resurrection meant re-embodiment, but that's not all. From the time of Ezekiel 37 at least, resurrection was an image used to refer to the great return from exile, the renewal of the covenant, and to connote the belief that when this happened, it would mean that Israel's sin and death, that is her exile, had been dealt with that Yahweh had renewed his covenant with her. Thus, the resurrection of the dead became both a symbol for the coming of the new age and, itself taken literally, one central element in the package. When Yahweh restored the fortunes of his people, then, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, together with all God's people, down to and including the martyrs who died in the cause, would be re-embodied, raised to new life in God's new world. That's part of the reason why resurrection is so important at times of martyrdom, because the martyrs are quite clear that God is going to make a whole new world in which righteousness will dwell. 
And therefore, it's grossly unfair if they who have struggled and died in the cause aren't raised again to see it. Resurrection is part of the very, we would say, this worldly hope for the future that they cherished. And where Second Temple Jews believed in resurrection then, that belief had to do with, on the one hand, the re-embodiment of formerly dead human beings, and on the other with the inauguration of the new age, the new covenant, in which all the righteous dead would be raised simultaneously. That is presumably why when Jesus spoke of the Son of Man rising from the dead as an individual within the continuing flow of history in Mark 9, the disciples were puzzled as to what on earth he could be talking about. So, if a first century Jew had said that someone had been raised from the dead, the one thing they didn't mean was that that person had gone into a state of disembodied bliss, there either to rest forever or to wait until the great day of re-embodiment. You can test this. Supposing in 150 BC, somebody who believed passionately that the Maccabean martyrs were true and righteous Israelites... Or someone in AD 150 who believed that Simeon ben Kozibar had been the true Messiah, if any such existed, which I doubt. Would they have said that they or he, the martyrs or ben Kozibar, had been raised from the dead, intending by that statement to indicate simply that their cause was righteous and that they were alive in a place of honor in the presence of God? The answer is obvious. No, they wouldn't have done Someone in the position I've described might well have said that the martyrs or Ben Kozibar were alive in the form of an angel or spirit or that their souls were in the hand of God. That was the language they would use. But they wouldn't have dreamt of saying that they'd already been raised from the dead. Resurrection meant embodiment and would imply that the new age had already dawned. So if you'd said to a first century Jew, the resurrection has occurred at any time in this period, you would have received the puzzled response that it obviously hadn't, since the prophets and the righteous men and the martyrs and the patriarchs were not walking around alive again, and since the restoration spoken of by Ezekiel 37 hadn't occurred either. And if by way of explanation you said, no, no, I didn't mean that, I mean that I've had a new sense, a wonderful experience of divine grace and healing and forgiveness... Or if you said, what I mean is that our great leader is now alive in the presence of God following his shameful torture and death, your interlocutor might have congratulated you on having such an experience or discussed with you such a belief about your former leader, but he or she would still have been puzzled as to why you would use the phrase resurrection from the dead to describe either of these things. That's not what the words meant. So that's a very long second step in my second stage of the argument. Christianity began as a resurrection movement, but resurrection to a first century Jew meant all these things that I've just been describing. Therefore, this is the third step in the, in the second stage of the argument. As I've stressed before, the new age hadn't dawned in the way that first century Jews had imagined, nor had the resurrection of all God's people of old taken place. Though Matthew implies in a very strange passage that something like a foretaste of this happened just um, after the crucifixion. I do not know what that passage is all about, and if anyone here thinks they do, please enlighten me afterwards. And yet, the very earliest church declared roundly not only that Jesus was raised from the dead, but also that the resurrection of the dead had occurred, Acts 4.2, etc., preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. What's more, they busily set about redesigning their worldview, their praxis, their controlling stories, their symbolic universe and their basic theology around this new point that the resurrection had occurred. 
They behaved, in other words, as though the New Age had already arrived. That was the inner logic of the Gentile mission. Since God had now done for Israel, in the person of Jesus, what he was going to do for Israel, it was time for the Gentiles to share in the blessing. The early church didn't behave, in other words, simply as though they'd had a new sort of religious experience. They didn't behave simply as if their former leader was now alive and well in the presence of God, whether as an angel or a spirit or whatever. The only explanation for their behavior, their stories, their symbols, and their theology is that they really believed that Jesus had been re-embodied, had been bodily raised from the dead. And this conclusion, in fact, is not often disputed today, even among those who insist that the body of Jesus did remain decomposing in the tomb. The fourth step in the second phase of the argument is, of course, simply to question whether the early church was right. We must, as historians, postulate something that will account for this group of first-century Jews, including a well-educated Pharisee like Paul, coming so swiftly and so strongly to the conclusion that against their expectations of all the righteous being raised to life at the end of the present age, one person had been raised to life in the middle of the present age. We shall look at those various possibilities presently. Third stage in this argument, Christianity began as a messianic movement. I've already spoken about this. It was a messianic movement with the puzzling difference that, unlike all other messianic movements known to us, the Messiah was someone who had already faced the Roman procurator and been executed by the Roman troops. I argued this morning that we cannot explain the rise of messianic belief on the basis of the resurrection alone. We must postulate, and the Gospels encourage us to accept, that Jesus acted and spoke messianically during his lifetime and that these actions and words were the proximate cause of his death. But equally, we cannot explain why the early church continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah if he had simply been executed by the Romans in the manner of failed messiahs. This is clear from the second step in the argument. Jewish expectations of a Messiah, as we've seen often enough, focused on defeating the pagans and rebuilding the temple. For a Messiah to be killed by the pagans, especially if he hadn't rebuilt the temple or liberated Israel, was the surest sign that he was another in the long line of failed messiahs, false messiahs. The crucifixion of a Messiah does not say to a first century Jew that he was the true Messiah and that the kingdom has come. It says exactly the opposite. It says that he wasn't and it hadn't. On the contrary... If the Messiah you had been following was killed by the pagans, you were faced with a choice. You could either give up the revolution, the dream of liberation, some went that route, notably, of course, the whole rabbinic movement after 135, or you could find yourself a new Messiah, if possible, from the same family as the late lamented one. Some went that route, witnessed the continuing movement that ran from Judas the Galilean in AD 6 to his sons or grandsons in the 50s to another descendant, Menachem, during the war of 66 to 70 and to another descendant, Eliezer, who was the leader of the ill-fated Sicarii on Masada in 73. They worked that dynasty for all it was worth, even though it kept coming to nothing. But let's be clear. If after the death 
of one of those messiahs. Or if after the death of Simon Bargiora, the great would-be king of the Jews during the war of 66 to 70, or if after the death of Simeon ben Kozibar, who I've mentioned again and again in 135, if after any of that you had claimed that this man, Simon or Simeon or whoever, really was the Messiah, you would invite a pretty sharp response from the average first century Jew. And if by way of explanation... You said that you had a strong sense of Simon or Simeon or whoever still being with you, still supporting and leading you, and that you thought that his agenda was still worth pursuing. The kindest response you might expect was that their angel or spirit was still communicating with you, not that he had been raised from the dead. So the third step in the third stage of the argument, granted that Jesus of Nazareth certainly was crucified as a rebel king, we are bound to regard it as extremely strange that the early Christians not only insisted that he was actually the Messiah, but they reordered their worldview, praxis, symbols, stories, and theology around this belief. They had the two normal options open to them. They could have given up Messianism, as did the post-135 rabbis, and gone in for some form of private religion instead, gone and founded a little commune like the Essenes and said the Lord's Prayer three times a day and waited for something to happen would have been an option. They clearly didn't do that. Anything less like a private religion than going around the world saying that Jesus was the Kyrios Cosmo, the Lord of the world, it would be hard to imagine. Equally and most interestingly, they could have found themselves a new Messiah from among Jesus' blood relatives. We know from various sources that Jesus' relatives continued to be important and well-known within the early church, and that one of them, James, the brother of the Lord, though not having been part of the movement during Jesus' lifetime, became its central figure, the anchor man in Jerusalem, while Peter and Paul went off around the world in and out of jail and all the rest of it. Yet, 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 this is a vital clue. This is like Sherlock Holmes's dog that didn't bark in the night. Nobody in early Christianity ever dreamed of saying that James was the Messiah. Nothing would have been more natural, especially on the analogy of the family of Judas the Galilean. Yet James was simply known, even to Josephus in Antiquities 20, as the brother of the so-called Messiah, Hologomenos Christos. We are therefore forced once again, the fourth step in this third stage of the argument, and my congratulations if you've followed all these steps and stages, we are forced to postulate something that will explain why this group of first century Jews who had cherished messianic hopes and focused them on Jesus of Nazareth not only continued to believe that he was the Messiah after his death, but actively announced him as such in the Jewish as well as the pagan world, cheerfully redrawing the picture of messiahship around him, but refusing to abandon it. Now, Drawing this account of early Christianity within its Jewish context to a provisional conclusion, we can observe the following points of continuity and discontinuity between the Jewish context and early Christianity. The language of resurrection only makes sense within its first century Jewish context 
And it is clearly the presupposition for all early Christianity. However, the resurrection of one person within the ongoing course of present history was not what first century Jews expected. And all the accounts we have of the risen Jesus describe the appearances in a way which indicates that there was a clear and well-known distinction to be drawn between those those appearances and the experienced presence of the Lord in the church in the succeeding days and years. We are forced as a matter of history, I believe, to explain how it was that the early church came to make a claim which only makes sense in the Jewish world, yet is not precisely what they as Jews had expected. How they came to describe Jesus in a certain way as the basis of their life and work, yet not in the way he was made known to them in their own subsequent day-to-day experience. That is the historical problem of the resurrection of Jesus. And to begin to answer it, and of course we'll only begin to answer it here, we must turn to our earliest written source, in this case Paul, in this case 1 Corinthians 15. At this point, someone will no doubt say, following various popular writers, surely Paul, the first writer to mention the resurrection, refers simply to a spiritual body. Doesn't this mean for him the resurrection was a non-physical event? That's what the Bishop of Durham was saying a generation or a decade or two ago. And in any case, people have said, isn't Paul's seeing of Christ on the road to Damascus a pretty clear case of a subjective vision to be explained in terms of his deep inner religious experience? And shouldn't we suppose that actually all the other seeings of Jesus, so-called, were really like that? Wasn't that how it really was until the much later gospel tradition came upon such things and muddied the water by having Jesus cooking breakfast by the shore and eating broiled fish? Now we may note as the beginning of an answer that Paul is of course the classic example of the early Christian who has woven resurrection so thoroughly into his thinking that if you take it away the whole thing unravels in your hands. Note also that Paul came from a strong Pharisaic background in which he clearly believed passionately in the restoration of Israel and the coming of the new age in which God would judge the world and rescue his people. That's the man we're reading when we read 1 Corinthians 15. Begin with verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's a violent image. It invokes the idea of a Caesarean section in which a baby is ripped from the womb, born before it was ready, blinking in shock at the sudden light, scarcely able to breathe in this new world. We detect here, I think, partly a touch of autobiography as Paul reflects on what it had felt like on the Damascus Road. But there's more we trace a clear sense that Paul knew that what had happened to him was precisely not like what had happened to the others. What's more, he only just got in as a witness to the resurrection before the appearances stopped. When he says last of all, he means that what one might call the ordinary Christian experience of knowing the risen Jesus within the life of the church, of prayer and faith in the sacraments, was not the same sort of thing that had happened to him. So he distinguishes his Damascus Road experience both from all previous seeings of the risen Jesus and from the subsequent experience of the church himself included. Move back from that to the start of the chapter in verses 1 to 7, what Paul describes as the very early tradition that was common to all Christians. He received it and handed it on. We must assume that this represents what was believed in the very earliest days of the church back in the 30s. 
The tradition includes, interestingly, the burial of Jesus, conveniently ignored by Crossan, who suggests darkly that Jesus' body was eaten by dogs as it hung on a low cross so that there was nothing left to bury. In Paul's world, as has been said often enough but still not heard by all scholars, to say that someone had been buried and then raised three days later was to say that the tomb was empty though the emptiness of the tomb, so important in 20th century discussion, was clearly not something that Paul felt any need to stress. For him, saying resurrection was quite enough to imply that and much more. For Paul to say he was raised from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind him, is about as tautologous as for me to say, I walked down the road on my feet. Of course it did. That's what resurrection meant in that world. His mention of the 500 who saw Jesus at one time cannot be simply assimilated to the Pentecost experience mentioned in Acts 2, as some have tried to do, not least because it precedes the appearance to James, and James was already on board with the early movement, it seems, by the time of Pentecost. But perhaps the most important thing about the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15 is what Paul understood the resurrection to mean. I was debating with Crossan on a telecast on May the 1st last year, one of those strange hookup things that they've done in the States where different people in different centers can come in and get together and look at this thing. And uh, I was arguing this case for the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and eventually Crossan said, so what if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead? It's very nice for Jesus, but what on earth could it mean for anyone else? which seems to me a pretty extraordinary challenge for somebody with the uh, remarkable depth of, of uh, theological training that Crossan had, but still. But for Paul, you see, the resurrection was not a matter of the opening up of a new religious experience for him personally. It had done that, but that wasn't its primary meaning. Nor was it a proof of survival, of life after death. Big deal. They all knew that people survived, except the Sadducees. There is a remarkable point of confusion among serious scholars on this point as to what the bodily resurrection of Jesus would mean. For Paul, it meant that the scriptures had been fulfilled, that the kingdom of God had arrived, that the new age had broken into the midst of the present age, had dawned upon a surprised and unready world. It all happened according to the scriptures which doesn't mean that Paul could find a few biblical proof texts for it if he hunted hard enough. It means that the entire biblical narrative had reached its climax, had come true in these astonishing events. As a result, Paul can then, in the course of verses 12 to 28, argue that the coming of the new age is a two-stage affair. The Messiah first and then finally, the resurrection of all those who belong to the Messiah. And we should note most carefully, in view of our earlier discussion, that the Messiah is not envisaged as being in the present time a spirit, a soul, or an angel. He is not in an intermediate state, awaiting a time when he will be finally raised from the dead. He is already risen. Furthermore, he is already, as a human being, exalted into the presence of God. He is already ruling the world, not simply in some divine capacity, but precisely as a human being, fulfilling the destiny marked out for, for the human race from the sixth day of creation. Paul quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you take thought for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus is ruling the world as the exalted human being. 
On this basis, Paul can move in verses 29 to 34 to assert most emphatically the future embodiedness, both of the Christian dead and of the Christian living. This, he says, is actually the only explanation within the Jewish worldview where alone this language makes any sense for the present practice of the church, both in the strange practice of baptism for the dead, whatever that's all about, and in, to us, the more accessible image of his apostolic labors. The present life of the church, in other words, is not about soul-making, the attempt to produce or train disembodied beings for a future disembodied life. It is about working with fully human beings who will be re-embodied at the last after the model of the Messiah. But what sort of a body will it be? Interestingly, I was doing a seminar in Oxford for Chris Rowlands a few weeks ago, and this was the question that people kept coming back to, what sort of a body are you talking about? It's exactly the question Paul faces. Jump ahead in the passage for a moment to verses 50 to 57. There Paul states clearly and emphatically his belief in a body which is changed, not abandoned. The present physicality in all its transience, its decay, and its subjection to weakness, to sickness, and to death is not to go on and on forever and ever. That's what Paul means by saying flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What is required is what we might call a non-corruptible physicality. The dead will be raised incorruptible, verse 52, and we, that is those who are left alive until the great day, will be changed. As in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul envisages the present physical body putting on the new body as a new mode of physicality over and above what we presently know. This is not resuscitation, but it is also emphatically not disembodiment. When Marcus Borg and I were debating here two years ago, uh, one of the things that Mark really emphasizes is that the resurrection of Jesus is not resuscitation. Okay, it isn't resuscitation, but nor is it disembodiment. And if this is what Paul believes about the resurrection body of Christians, we may assume, since his argument works from the one to the other, that this was more or less his view of the resurrection of Jesus as well, with the difference, of course, that Jesus did not see corruption. Now, in between the passages we've just very briefly examined, of course, one could go on about 1 Corinthians 15 all day, there comes the most complex part of the chapter, verses 35 to 49. My normal method of expounding difficult bits in Paul is to try and tidy up the bits at either side and then approach cautiously from both ends at once. In verses 35 to 49, Paul speaks of the different kinds of physicality between which there exists both continuity and discontinuity. Within this, when he speaks of the future resurrection body as a spiritual body, a soma pneumaticon, he does not mean, as has been suggested, a non-physical body. The problem is that we've all read the RSV, which says that the present body is sown a physical body and is raised a spiritual body. It's one of the most disastrous mistranslations that the RSV has, has perpetuated. The first body, the present body, is the soma psuchikon, the soul-ish body, S-O-U-L, soul-ish body, contrasted with the future body, which is the soma pneumaticon. 
Now, what's this soma psychicon doing? We might have assumed if it's a soulish body, and if we were reading it in a Hellenistic or Platonic sense, that that the present body too is non-physical, since that's clearly out of the question. We rightly take both phrases to refer to an actual physical body, the first one animated by soul, and the second one animated by spirit, clearly God's spirit. One final note about Paul's view of resurrection. It is often said that he and indeed many other Christians don't distinguish between resurrection and exaltation. And that if anything, exaltation is the primary category with the resurrection of the body being a later development. 1 Corinthians 15 clearly gives the lie to this. The exaltation of Jesus is here clearly distinguished from the resurrection. Of course, since the risen Jesus is the same person as the exalted Lord, and since his resurrection is the prior condition for his exaltation, there is close continuity between the two. Paul is, of course, quite capable, where his argument requires it, of referring only to the exaltation, not the resurrection, as in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. But here in this passage, where he sets the matter out more fully than anywhere else, the two are aligned without confusion and distinguished without dislocation. Now, I have concentrated on the large-scale historical argument and on the earliest written document, namely 1 Corinthians. But when, in conclusion, we turn our gaze wider towards the rest of the New Testament and early Christianity, I suggest that we find Paul's perspective reaffirmed at every turn. The resurrection narratives of the Gospels, for all their very puzzling nature and apparent conflicts, are quite clear on three points. First, the sightings of and meetings with Jesus are quite unlike the sort of heavenly visions or visions of a figure in blinding light or dazzling glory or wreathed in clouds that one might expect in the Jewish apocalyptic or Merkava traditions. They are not, that is to say, attempting to describe the sort of thing one would expect if what they wanted to say was, Jesus has been exalted to a position of either divinity or heavenly glory, and we are going to describe that in the most lavish Jewish language we know. After all, the most popular Jewish text among the rabbis on the resurrection was Daniel 12, verse 1 following, which speaks of the righteous shining like stars. If you had been a first century Jew making up a resurrection story on the basis of your biblical background, you wouldn't fail to have had the person shining like a star. It's interesting. That's one thing never happens in the four resurrection narratives in the Gospels. Second point about the Gospels, the body of Jesus seems to be both physical in the sense that it was not a non-material angel or spirit and what we might call, for want of a better word, transphysical in the sense that it could come and go through locked doors. As I read the Gospel accounts, I have a sense that they're saying, in effect, I know this is extraordinary, but this is just the way it was. They are describing, in effect, note this, more or less exactly that for which Paul provides the underlying theoretical framework, an event for which there was no precedent and of which there remains as yet no subsequent example, an event involving neither the resuscitation nor the abandonment of a physical body, but its transformation into a new mode of physicality. Very interesting, that, isn't it? We have to say at the end of the day that either the gospel writers have read Paul and have said, well, that's a very interesting idea. He's got all this stuff about this body being changed and transformed, etc. 
but they have then told stories to illustrate that from which all of Paul's developed theology and exegesis has been cunningly withdrawn, and they've done it in four different ways each. All we've got to say that the things the gospel writers are telling us are stories, artless as they seem, for which then Paul later describes a theoretical, theological, biblical framework. Of course, they're written up later, but I suggest on this basis that they must go back to pre-Pauline oral tradition. That's the second thing about the gospel narratives. Third thing is that the accounts are quite clear. This is important, again, in view of the question that was asked earlier on today about Jesus and the gospels. Quite clear that the appearances of Jesus were not the sort of thing that went on happening during the continuing existence of the early church. Luke did not suppose that his readers might meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus in the sense that those two did. Matthew did not expect his audience to meet Jesus on a mountain in that way. John did not suppose that people were still liable to come upon Jesus cooking breakfast by the shore. From this point of view, I find it totally incredible to suppose with a good many New Testament scholars that the gospel accounts of the resurrection, especially Luke and John, represent a late development in the tradition in which for the first time people thought it appropriate or even necessary to speak of Jesus in such an overtly physical fashion. The idea that traditions developed from early Hellenistic ones to Jewish later ones is in any case extremely odd, and though widely held this century ought to be abandoned, in my view, as as absolutely counterintuitive, never mind unwarranted. I suggest that whenever John and Luke reached their final form, the traditions embodied now in their closing chapters go back to genuine early memories, told and retold, no doubt, shaped and reshaped, of course, by the life of the community, but with their basic message preserved intact. It wasn't the sort of thing, quite frankly, that people in that world spoke or wrote about. All attempts to line up the resurrection narratives with other literature have conspicuously failed. Without going into more details, for which there's sadly no time, let me mention very briefly some of the added strengths that this view can claim. It's often pointed out that the tomb of Jesus was not venerated in the manner of the tombs of the martyrs. It is often noted that we have to explain in very early Christianity the emphasis on the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. It isn't so often pointed out, as I mentioned earlier today, that the burial of Jesus was intended as part one of a two-stage burial. First you lay the corpse out wrapped in grave clothes, and then you probably come and go into the tomb at various stages because there are other shelves and other people will die and you will bury other people. And you will notice the different stages of decomposition of each of the bodies. And when that body has finally decomposed you will then go reverently and sorrowfully with an ossuary, a bone box, collect the bones, fold them in a specific way, and then store the ossuary either in the back of that cave or somewhere else. But had Jesus' body been still in a tomb somewhere, someone would sooner or later have had to collect up the bones, put them in an ossuary, and the whole game would have been up. So these and similar considerations force the eye back to the first Easter day and to the question we've asked all along, what precisely happened? 
Now, among those who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus today, one theory is particularly common. Gerd Ludemann and Michael Golder and others have argued that Peter and Paul experienced some sort of visionary hallucination. Peter, they say, was overcome with grief and perhaps guilt and experienced what people in that state often do, a sense of the presence of the recently deceased person with him, talking to him, reassuring him. There's literature about that. People write it up. It's in the, it's in the contemporary medical study and nursing study of, of grief experiences. And Paul, they say, was in a state of fanatical guilt, and this induced a similar fantasy in him. And the two of them, and this is where Golder and Ludeman, I think, must know they're shooting a bit of a line. The two of them then communicated their experience enthusiastically to the other disciples who experienced a kind of corporate version of this fantasy. This theory is a kind of updated version of the mainline Bultmann theory, according to which, though the body of Jesus remained in the tomb, the disciples came into a new experience of the love and grace of God. Or the Skillebeck's theory that when the disciples went to the tomb, quote, their minds were so, so filled with light that it didn't matter whether there was a body there or not, unquote. I haven't got time to discuss these theories in detail, but I have to say that as a historian, I find them far and away harder to accept than the stories told by the evangelists themselves for all their problems. For a start, supposing Peter had been so deeply grieving about Jesus that he had had one of those grief experiences of the presence of the beloved but uh, de- lately departed friend with him, what category would he have used for that? It wouldn't have been resurrection. Think of that remarkable story in Acts 12. You remember when... Peter is in prison, and the disciples are having a prayer meeting in somebody's house, praying for his release. And they are so full of faith in their prayer that when he is, they can't believe it's actually happened, which is a nice little comment on prayer and faith and all that. Uh, Peter is released from prison and comes and knocks at the door. And the little maid, Rhoda, comes running to see who it is at the door and hears Peter's voice. And she, she's so overcome with excitement that she forgets to open the door and let him in, goes back to talk to them and say, it's Peter, it's Peter. And they say, you're out of your mind. She says, no, it is Peter. And they say, it must be his angel. What do they think has happened? They think Peter has been killed in the prison. And this is one of those post-death experiences that they in their grief are being granted a brief visitation of Peter on his way to a kind of post-mortem resting place, paradise, a disembodied state, ahead of the resurrection. They don't say he's been raised from the dead. Saying it's him and it's his angel is thoroughly compatible with going in sorrow and grief the next day and begging for the body and burying it. You see, if you'd described such an experience to a first century Jew, even if that person had been enthused to the extent of experiencing something similar him or herself, it would never have convinced them that the age to come had been inaugurated, that it was time for the Gentiles to hear the good news, that the kingdom was really here, that Jesus was after all the Messiah. I believe, therefore, that the only way forward for us as historians is to grasp the nettle to recognize that we are, of course, at the borders of language, of philosophy, of history, and of theology. One of the great things about postmodernism is people invite us to celebrate the fact that we are at such borders. We had better learn to take seriously the witness of the entire early church that Jesus of Nazareth was raised bodily to a new sort of life 
three days after his execution. This, of course, offers far and away the best historical explanation of the rise of the early church. All other explanations leave far more questions unsolved than solved. And in particular, it explains why the church came so very early on to believe that the new age had dawned. Why, in consequence, the early church came to believe that Jesus' death had not been a messy accident, the end of a beautiful dream, but rather the climactic saving act of the God of Israel, the one God of all the earth. And it explains why, in consequence, they, to their own astonishment, arrived at the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth had done what, according to the Scriptures, only Israel's God could do. In that sense, the resurrection did point them towards that full Christology, which they came to hold within 20 years or so. But the critical thing right from the beginning was that the resurrection of Jesus demonstrated he was the Messiah, that he had indeed borne the destiny of Israel on his shoulders in carrying the Roman cross outside the city walls, that he had gone through the climax of Israel's exile and had returned from that exile three days later according to and in fulfillment of the entire biblical narrative, and that his followers, in being the witnesses to these things, were thereby and thereupon commissioned to take the news of his victory to the ends of the earth. If this is the conclusion towards which the evidence points, then the historian is faced with a choice. We can say, if we wish, that our evidence must be incomplete or misleading, since we know a priori that dead bodies don't come back to life. Interestingly, when the Jesus Seminar were discussing the resurrection and having a press conference about it, they brought in a woman who works in the mortuary in Los Angeles to testify before the cameras that the dead bodies she dealt with tended to stay dead, um, <laughs> as though this was a kind of a new thing that first-century Jews wouldn't have been expecting since they were pre-scientific creatures who didn't understand such things. Let's, let's be quite clear. The fact that all other dead people have stayed dead is part of the Christian case, not an argument against it. We can say then, if we wish, that our evidence must be misleading because we know that dead bodies don't rise, so Jesus can't rise. That's what Crossan says, of course. He says right at the beginning of his discussion of the resurrection, I take it for granted that dead people do not rise. There you are. Or we can say that we ought to hold open the possibility that worldviews which deny the very possibility of resurrection might themselves be deficient. And we ought to hold open the possibility, we might say, that the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is also evidence that his whole vocation to be the bearer of Israel's destiny at the turning point of history, to be the very embodiment of Israel's God, was thereby vindicated. And this is, of course, precisely what the early Christians said to the rest of the world, and it's precisely what I would say to you today. If the study of Jesus in his, in his historical context is then to be more than a mere exercise in ancient history, albeit an utterly fascinating one, it is perhaps at this point that we can observe the way in which it points beyond itself. As far as this historian is concerned, the line which begins with the historical Jesus moves forward into the historical present, offering as much of a challenge to the world of late 20th century postmodernity as it did to the world of Second Temple Judaism and the early Roman Empire. But that is another story for another day. 
If you'd like to hear more lectures from Regent College, you can visit their website, regentaudio.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.